Good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. If you don't know me, uh, I'm glad you decided to come and worship with us this morning. <clears throat> I want you to think with me for a minute about your morning routine. What did you do this morning? You all got up and got out of bed, which is good. Some of you had coffee. Some of you ate breakfast. If you're the one of the ones who didn't eat breakfast, you should remedy that, right? Most important meal of the day. Uh, some of you had to shake your kids out of bed because they were sleeping in. Some of you were kept up all night by crying babies or aching joints or something else, and, and your morning was a little drowsy. Some of you exercised. Some of you, hopefully most of you, showered this morning. We all appreciate that. But did any of you think about breathing? Did you think about breathing? For most of us, we probably didn't give it a second thought. You're thinking about it now, and for that I apologize. Right? When I, I point out, now you're thinking about it and wondering, okay, how fast do I breathe? Am I going to stop? I don't, right? All this stuff comes in. I'm sorry about that. But you didn't think about it until now, but it happened, right? And we needed it. Well, Advent and the gospel as a whole can be a lot like our morning routine. It's familiar. At one time, we were really focused on it, and sometimes we tweak what we do, right? We decide we want to get up a little bit earlier so that we can exercise before the day begins or so we can have a quiet time with God or we, we get real adventurous and we change up our coffee flavor, something like that, right? In terms of the Christian walk, sometimes we change up how we connect with God and maybe we focus on a different spiritual discipline to mix it up a little bit. The thing is, breathing is essential to the whole thing, right? The incarnation of Jesus, that is God taking on humanity, is essential to it all. If we stop breathing, we die. If we ever get away from the gospel, if we ever leave behind the incarnation, if we ever give up Jesus, we die. So that's why we're celebrating and remembering every week leading up to Christmas an aspect of the gospel, a particular emphasis on the arrival of Jesus in this series called Advent, Old and New, where we're looking at a New Testament text paired with an old one. Last week we saw Jesus as the eternal word of God, and this week, as you may have guessed, we'll be looking at Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Before we get into our text for this morning, I'm going to tell you the main point of this message. God is with us. God is with us. This, like way too much of the Christian life, is very, very easy to take for granted. Please don't. Don't take it for granted. God, the creator of it all, the most vast and powerful and loving and pure and righteous being. The one who is all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere, all at once. That God is with us. He's with us. So if you don't take anything else from this message today, if you tune out for the rest of it, and I would encourage you to not do that, but if you do, see this. God is with us. Let those words sink in. Dwell on them this week. Write them down. Think on that truth. Chew on it. Because it's utterly preposterous that this is true. And yet, 
It's the claim over and over again of the scriptures. So, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The reality that God is with us. And as we do, we're going to work through four scenes. First, in Isaiah, and then we'll turn back to Matthew chapter 1, which we heard read already. Before we get into the text, please pray with me. God, we thank you that you are with us. We ask now that you would be with us this morning. We know now that you're with us this morning. We ask that you would let us feel your presence especially by your word and by your spirit making your word effective. Lord, would you transform us and cause our hearts to grow in affection for you, our minds to grow in knowledge of who you are, Lord, and let our lives be changed so that we walk out the truths of your word. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, please open up with me to Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 17. Uh, That's on page uh, 558 in the Worship Center Bible. If that's what you're using, I'm preaching from the NIV. You're welcome to use whatever translation you have with you or uh, whatever is on your phone. Our scene one this morning from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, is Ahaz and the promise. I'm not going to read all of these verses. I'm going to do some summarizing for you, but here we go. Ahaz, you may or may not know, was a king during the time that God's people were divided into two nations for some uh, sinful activity. They're divided into two nations, Israel and Judah. And Ahaz was the king of the nation of Judah, and he was a wicked king who was not faithful to God. During his kingship, according to Isaiah 7, there was quite a lot of conflict, largely because of the growing power of some nations surrounding Judah, particularly the wicked nation of Assyria. And Assyria is, uh, they know wickedness like no other. They're one of the most terrible nations to ever have existed. And they're growing in power, and and alliances are being formed because people have to figure out, are we going to protect ourselves from Assyria or not? And, And Judah is feeling the pressure to join or not join these alliances. They need to make a decision. Well, Ahaz, in particular, is the one who feels that pressure, right? He's the king. So it's his call. Well, why is Ahaz, this wicked king, so important? Remember the promise that we talked about a few times in 2 Samuel 7 that God made to David? He made a promise that one would come who would sit on his throne and establish his house forever. Of course, we know that that one who would come, uh, ultimately that promise is fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus. But... While Israel awaited her true king, other kings sat on David's throne. In this case, the promise ran through the wicked king Ahaz. And so, in Isaiah 7, we see Ahaz in a predicament and with all this pressure. And in verse 2, we see that the hearts of Ahaz and all of his people are shaken. It says, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They are terrified about what's going to happen to them as individuals and to their nation because of Assyria. So God speaks to his prophet Isaiah and tells him to meet with Ahaz and tell Ahaz, don't be afraid as long as you stand firm in your faith. Look with me at verses 7 and 9 of Isaiah chapter 7. It says, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not 
happen. In other words, you will not be overrun. And then down to the second half of verse 9. But if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. It will not take place, God says. It will not happen. I'm going to protect you. These other nations, in those middle verses, will fall apart. They'll fall apart. But if you do not stand firm in your faith, God says, you will not stand at all. He then says to Ahaz in verse 10, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz in verse 11, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Ahaz, God says, ask me for a sign. Nothing is too great. I will show you that I'm serious about protecting you. I'll give you a sign so that you believe me. Well, Ahaz is a wicked king, and he won't do what God says. He says in verse 12, I will not ask, and then he, he feigns piety. He quotes scripture, and he says, I will not put the Lord to the test. We, we remember Jesus quoting that in the New Testament, right? Do not test the Lord your God. Well, Ahaz's intentions aren't so pure. Instead, he quotes scripture to God in a way to openly defy him. And he tries to trap God with his own words. And the truth of the matter is he just doesn't trust God at all. So Isaiah then, speaking on behalf of God, gives a promise anyway. We heard this. See if you recognize where it comes from. Let's look at verse 14. Isaiah says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He gives him that promise. And then he goes on to say that not only is Judah going to suffer for what Ahaz has done and for his disobedience, but they are going to suffer like they could never imagine. But in the midst of it all, there's a promise. A promise that God doubles down on again and again and again throughout the scriptures. That one would come. That one would come to fulfill that promise to David. That there would be an enduring and good king sitting on the throne one day. People have this picture of God in the Old Testament. And often people in the church have this picture of God in the Old Testament as this monster right, who just destroys people all the time. And, and the New Testament God is full of grace and mercy, and he just, he lets a lot of things slide. But then the Old Testament God, uh, he's not kind, right? He's, he's mean and horrible. And, and that could not be further from the truth. Right here, in the midst of this terrible disobedience and defiance and self-reliance by the king of Judah, the king who's sitting on the throne of David, who the promise is coming through, Right there, God reminds us of his promise that one is coming who will establish his house forever. So that's the backdrop for the quotation that we see later in Matthew. And for now, we're going to jump ahead to scene two, a broken lineage. So let's jump ahead to Matthew chapter one. It's on page 783 in the Worship Center Bible if you're using that. Otherwise, just turn ahead. It's the first book in the New Testament. Context is of uh, incredible importance throughout the Bible, and I would be doing you a disservice this morning if I did not talk to you about the context of the birth narrative of Jesus found in Matthew 1. 
If we're honest, many of us opening up to Matthew skip right through those first 16 or 17 verses, right, to get to the good stuff of Jesus' birth. Well, it is true that Jesus' birth could be called the good stuff, but it's also true that it's very enhanced by what comes before it. Matthew 1 famously opens up with a genealogy that's full of names that you might recognize, but that Matthew's early readers certainly did. A genealogy uh, for first century people and for many around the world today was like reminiscing at a family barbecue. Right? You get to talking and sharing stories, and, and you mention a name, and, and with that name, a whole lot of things are brought to mind, right? The good and the bad and the beautiful and the ugly, and, and it's not just a name, but, but it's a story. I can do this with you right now. I'll say a couple names, and you're going to be reminded of some things, some good, some bad, some complicated, right? Abraham Lincoln. That's not just a name, that you hear and move on, you know about Abraham Lincoln and you know some stories. Aaron Rodgers, right? Not just a name. Princess Diana, right? We know these names and we're familiar with them. And the same thing would have happened for early readers of Matthew's gospel as they began to read his account of Jesus' birth. With these names in Matthew, we, uh, where we often see just a list of names because we're not familiar with them, the early readers, each of these names is a story. They saw a story as they read these names. And, and as an aside, this is one of the many benefits and one of the many reasons that it's very important to spend a lot of time in the scriptures, reading the Old Testament and the New Testament and the New Testament and the Old Testament. Because as you come to understand and hear the stories and, and learn the truths in the Old Testament, it enhances and, and makes like the New Testament becomes like 3D because you know these stories and they're not just names on a page. And then the New Testament sheds light on how to understand the Old Testament. And we have to spend time in the scriptures getting to know what God has said. Anyway. Some of the names here, like Abraham and Isaac and David and Solomon, are considered fathers of the faith and are Old Testament heroes. But virtually all of them, if not all of them, are either full of deep sin issues or surrounded by controversy. For some of them, the controversy is their own fault. Uh, for others, it's not their fault, but the controversy is still there. Abraham and David, as we know, are guilty of sexual assault. Solomon had way too many wives and concubines. Ahaz, as we heard about before, right, is a wicked king sitting on David's throne. The men, I think, are of interest in this lineage, but, but I think even more interesting are the four women here. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. So Tamar, her, her husband dies, and then uh, her family, his brothers, are supposed to protect her and take care of her, but she's neglected by them. And so she poses as a prostitute and becomes pregnant by her father-in-law. Rahab uh, famously shelters some spies in the city of Jericho. Remember that city that uh, Israel had to march around for seven days and then it collapsed? She sheltered spies, but she was a prostitute. Ruth. There's, there's nothing explicit in the book of Ruth about any kind of inappropriate behavior, but Ruth is a Moabite woman. Two things are true of the Moabites. First, they're banned from the assembly of God in the book of Deuteronomy, so they can't gather with God's people. Second, 
their whole lineage is traced back to an ancestral relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. It's kind of squeamish, right? Bathsheba doesn't do anything wrong, but she's sexually assaulted by King David. Her husband is murdered, and eventually she's married to the king. Now, that's not her fault. It's on David. But by dropping her name, Matthew doubles down on reminding us of the controversial characters that surround Jesus' lineage. As I said, in 2023, we are often quite unfamiliar with our Old Testaments, and that's unfortunate, right? And these stories are not super familiar to us, but they still make us squirm, right? We hear about these things that are going on, and that's Jesus' lineage. Well, now imagine if these were stories of people that you felt like you knew, right? That were maybe important to you in some way or at some point in your life, but that ended up steeped in controversy or sin. It's, It's not so much like Abe or Aaron, or Princess Di. It's more like Lance Armstrong, or Bill Cosby. Right? It, it's complicated, and, and it's squirmy, and it's difficult. But these are the people in the lineage of Jesus, and, and it's against this backdrop, and out of this list, that Matthew moves right into more controversy in our scene three, a controversial baby. Look with me in Matthew 8, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, we just talked about that lineage that's full of all kinds of scandal, right? For Matthew's readers, they they get to verse 18, and they say, this is how the birth came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. And they're thinking, oh man, here we go again. Really? After that whole list, we just read all of these dozens of names. We're going to have another controversy added to the birth of the Messiah. What is going on? Like, I thought there was going to be this king who sat on David's throne, but there's more adultery and more drama and more problems. But before the readers of Matthew's account, though, there was Joseph. And Joseph actually lived this story out. Can you imagine poor Joseph? here? So Joseph and this young woman, Mary, are, are pledged to be married. And, and during this time period, it's, it's not like engagements are today. Engagements today, right, you get engaged, and they're, and they're serious, but if you learn something about that person that, yeah, this probably isn't going to work, or this isn't a good idea, you, you go your separate ways, and, and it's painful, and, but, but you can usually move on, and your life isn't over. Well, in, in this day, being engaged was like being married, And so to break off a betrothal was akin to a divorce. Matthew calls it that. It was really serious. So there's this huge level of commitment between Joseph and Mary. And you can imagine their excitement and anticipation of being married and their whole life together is before them. And now Joseph finds out she's pregnant. We know from reading the text that 
she's made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And, and we know this whole thing works out, right? It's, it's not another man that's involved. But, but Joseph, at this point in the story, does not know. He doesn't know. And neither is anyone else in his life, right? They're just going to see this growing baby bump and, and side eyes and everybody knows, well, it wasn't Joseph, so there's some assumptions being made, right? Well, Joseph isn't a bad guy, right? Verse 19 says that he's faithful to the law, that he wants to honor God with his behavior, and he, he seems to know at least some right from wrong, and he's kind to Mary, he doesn't become outraged. He doesn't go on the street corner like some scorned lover and say, ah, Mary did this. I can't believe how terrible she is. And, and this is awful. And, and she's horrible. And No, at the start of verse 20, it says, after he had considered this. Joseph considers what he's going to do. And verse 19 says, because, because he doesn't want to destroy this woman's life further. Remember, he, he cares for her. He decides to break it off quietly. Well, why does Jesus come like this? And why does Matthew's gospel start like this? With all this controversy and drama and difficulty, and why, why is the genealogy there before this story? Well, Martin Luther said this. He said, if Christ had arrived with trumpets and lain in a cradle of gold, his birth would have been a splendid affair, but it would not be a comfort to me. He was rather to lie in the lap of a poor maiden and be thought of little significance in the eyes of the world. Now I can come to him. Now he reveals himself to the miserable in order not to give any impression that he arrives with great power, splendor, wisdom, and aristocratic manners. Christ arrived in the midst of controversy and from a broken a line of broken people, in order that he could identify with people like you and me. We can't identify with royalty, right? We have no idea what it's like to have so many resources that we could decide this afternoon, I'm going to go to a private island today, and I'm going to spend the next month, and there's going to be basically no consequences because I can just throw money at whatever problems come my way. Or I can do what I want. I make the rules. I'm royalty, we have no idea what that's like. But we do know what it's like to experience difficulty, right? I know what it's like to experience difficulty. You know what it's like to experience difficulty. And more importantly, so does Jesus. His lineage is full of broken people. The pregnancy of his mother flows out of all those hard-to-handle stories in order to remind us that at the incarnation of God at the incarnation God did not take on the flesh of the highest king on earth rather he took on flesh of the lowly and the poor and the struggling and the controversial precisely because that is who he came to save church you are not too broken in your sin issues and and you you're not too lost and your background is not so messy that Jesus cannot break into your life and change everything. On the contrary, Jesus is in fact a uniquely equipped Savior for a circumstance just as messy as yours and mine. Jesus identifies with his people because of how he came into the world. It makes all the difference that this is how Jesus arrives. Think about it like this. 
Have you ever got advice from someone who has absolutely no idea what you're experiencing or what they're talking about? We've all been on the receiving end of that, and, and I have a story for you. When I, when I was a youth pastor a long time ago, this was not at a church here, I was 19 years old, uh, there was a family in the church I was serving at the time, and uh, th- they were struggling with one of their kids who was a teenager, maybe two or three or four years younger than me. And I thought, in my arrogance, that I could help them. I knew exactly what they were going, to, going through, and I knew how they could fix the problem, and, and, and I'm, I'm feeling so uncomfortable telling this story because it's embarrassing, right? We have these cringy things. And, um, and so I sat them down, and I remember sitting there in the office where I was and who was with me and what was going on, and, and I, I laid it out. I was sure of my advice. I knew if you just do this and this and this, that's going to fix the problem and everything's going to be good. How foolish was I? I had no clue what I was talking about. It's one of the, one of the, one of the memories that keeps me up at night, right, with embarrassment. We lay there and, and we do that. Well, we've all been on the receiving end of advice like that, right, from someone who has no idea what they're talking about, who's totally unqualified to speak into that issue, They have head knowledge, maybe they read a book, but they're clueless. Then other times, when we're going through something difficult, someone comes alongside us and they get it. They know exactly what we're going through. And they understand because because they've gone through it. They've experienced it. They're not looking in from the outside. They've entered into the situation with us. They don't judge, they don't talk down, often they don't prescribe. Sometimes they don't even talk at all, right? They just share the experience with us. But when they do talk, and when, with, when they do share their story, and when they do offer help, it's worth more than gold, because they get it. Because of all the controversy surrounding Jesus' birth and his complicated lineage and his poor upbringing and the life that he lived, Jesus gets it. He gets it. Jesus reveals himself to the miserable. And now I can come to him. His birth is controversial and it, and it caps off the end of this list of controversy so that when we meet him, When we come to him, when we walk with him and talk with him and we invite him into our lives, we can know that he gets us. He gets us. Which leads us to scene four, Emmanuel, God with us. Look back with me at verses 20 to 24. But after he, that is Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. We know that prophet is Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. I find it fascinating that God lets this story play out like it did. Joseph could have had this supernatural dream at any point in the process. God could have showed him what was going to happen. But it says here that it was only after he had considered this and kind of figured out what he was going to do that the angel of the Lord appeared to David. 
I think there's comfort for us in that. Because God, God doesn't always do this, right? Like we saw in Isaiah, he told Ahaz exactly what's going to happen. If you trust me, you're going to be fine. If you don't, you're going to be overrun. He, he told him exactly what was going to happen. Sometimes, though, he, he doesn't tell his people exactly what's going on. And that doesn't mean that he's not active. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's doing. It just might mean that we don't get to know exactly what God is doing and that he's still in total control of the situation. As it turns out, that's exactly the case here. God is in total control, but Joseph has no idea, right? Well, after Joseph does his thing and decides to quietly divorce Mary, the angel appears to him in this dream and says, don't. You're not going to do that, actually. Instead, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do something much, much better. You're going to stick with that girl. You're going to take her home as your wife. And oh, by the way, that baby that you're so worried about, that baby was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Again, can you imagine what's going on in Joseph's mind when he hears this? Like, that baby's conceived. Say what now? We gloss over this stuff because it's familiar, and we know how this played out. But, but seriously, imagine, right? Not only did you just find out that your bride-to-be is pregnant, and you finally figured out what you're going to do about that, but now you have this wild dream with an angel of God, and she says, or, and the angel, he says, she's actually been made pregnant by the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I would seriously be wondering if someone laced my burrito from the night before with something, because this is overwhelming, but then it gets even more intense. All right, take this woman home. She's going to give birth to a baby, and you're to give him the name, verse 21, Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Hold up. Right? He'll do what now? This baby? Remember, Joseph was a man who cared about the law. Later in life, he's following God, and he's, we see him dedicate Jesus in the temple, and he's, he's doing all these things a good God follower should do. And so he, he probably knew the stories and the promises and, and the prophecies and, and all of that, and he, and he longed for this Messiah to come and rescue his people. But the news that he gets that night is just over the top. Right? You, you hear success stories from people uh, who have humble beginnings all the time, right? And almost without fail, people say something like this. I can't believe this is happening to me. I I'm nobody, right? I can't believe that this, this thing that they're living, I can't believe that this actually happened. I suspect Joseph was saying something like that that night, right? I can't believe this. This baby is going to save his people from their sins, but Jesus' arrival changes everything because Jesus can save people from their sins. In fact, he can save you from your sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, We implore you on Christ's behalf. We urge you. We beg you. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we, that's you and me today, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on flesh and he arrived in controversy and he dealt with all that he did so that he would get you. But more than that, it was so that he can save you. 
See, because of Jesus' humanity, right, he knows what it is to experience temptation as you and I do, and even beyond it. Because Jesus experienced temptation to a way greater degree than you and me, right? I'm soft, and I give in to my temptation way too soon. Jesus never did, and so it kept intensifying. So when that temptation in your life feels overwhelming, Jesus gets it. He felt it worse than you did. He knows what it is to feel overwhelmed by emotion to an even greater degree than we do. We struggle with worry and anxiety, and we feed it in our minds. Well, Jesus felt the temptation to fall into worry, and he resisted it over and over and over. He felt righteous anger and was no doubt tempted to go overboard and blow up. But he surrendered that to the Father, and he kept his anger in check. Jesus knows what it is to feel despair. Some of you are feeling despair. He knows what it is to feel totally abandoned by his friends and his family in his greatest moment of need. He knows what it's like to feel like God isn't close, like God is far away, and still know that God is actually near and on his throne and in total control. He knows what it is to experience all of those things and to never sin. And yet, he became sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place on the cross. He bore our punishment, so that we could take his as a child of God. Jesus bore our punishment. He took our place, so that we could take his. You can be forgiven because of Jesus. And so along with Paul, I implore you, I beg you, I urge you this morning, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We come to verse 22 and 23 then. It's the culmination of this whole chapter. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The promise that God made all the way back in Isaiah to the wicked king Ahaz after Ahaz openly defied him is ultimately fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus Christ. Don't let this be lost on you because it's familiar. Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins, is Emmanuel, God with us. He's not Emmanuel, God who wants to be with us. He's not Emmanuel, God who would be with us if we tried a little harder and cleaned our lives a little bit up first. He's not Emmanuel, God is distant from us. He's not Emmanuel, God is with someone else. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And as Martin Luther said, I can know that he gets me. Commentator Craig Blomberg said it like this. He said, Matthew wants to emphasize that Jesus, as God, is with us. Deity is imminent. God is close. Too often those who have rightly contended for Jesus' full deity have created a God to whom they do not feel close rather than one who became human in every way like them, but without sin. As God with us, Jesus enables us to come boldly before God's throne when we accept the forgiveness of sins he made available 
and develop an intimate relationship with him. We rightly cling to Jesus' divinity. We make sure that we know that Jesus is God, and we should do that. But in doing so, we can accidentally create a God who is far away, a Savior who is uninvolved, who did this thing 2,000 years ago for us, and then kind of let us be and distance himself. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is with us. He's with us in our difficulty and our pain and our struggle and our joy and our celebration and our big life moments. And he's with us in our sin, enabling us to go boldly before the throne of God based upon his work in salvation. And he wants a relationship. Whether our lives are falling apart or we feel like we're doing pretty well, God is with us. And he's always working. Whether we're like Joseph and we can't see it yet, or we're like Isaiah and Ahaz and we know exactly what's going to happen, God is with us. The amazing thing is, at the end of Matthew's gospel, after uh, Jesus lives his whole life and he's crucified and he raises from the dead, he doubles down on this. Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. God is with us from the beginning to the end. From his incarnation to our future resurrection, God is with us. No matter what we're going through, even to the very end of the age. That's the hope and the truth of the advent of Jesus Christ. God is with us. Dwell on that. Think about it. Let it marinate in your heart and your soul. I said at the beginning that these truths are like breathing. The the truth of the gospel and of the incarnation and the the arrival of Jesus. And without them, we'll die. We can either breathe in sweet gospel air and have life abundant. Or we can suffocate. Well, there's a third option. Instead of rejecting the gospel and suffocating or instead of taking in as much free, sweet oxygen as we need, we can stray from the truth and instead we can breathe through a straw. God is always with us. He's always pursuing. He's always beckoning and calling us to himself and he's always working. But sometimes we decide that that's not important and we pick up one of these. And we try to breathe through it instead. We we try to do things our own way. Apart from him. Apart from resting in the gospel and walking in the hope and the help of the Holy Spirit. And we can probably survive like this for a little while. We we can get enough air to survive with this straw. But it's going to hurt. Right? It's going to be difficult exercise, any kind of strenuous movement is going to be impossible. We're going to severely limit ourselves. 
church, get rid of the straw. Get rid of the straw and press into Emmanuel and the truth that God is with us. Let's pray.